Our first Bible reading for today is from Malachi, chapter 1, verse 6, just picking up from last night. Malachi, chapter 1, verse 6. And we'll read all the way through to chapter 2, verse 16. A son honours his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, that you bring blind animals for sacrifice. Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be the great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it, says the Lord. You profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and its food, it's contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at its contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? says the Lord. First is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, And you do not set your heart to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty. I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me, and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction. But he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, 
but you have turned from the way and your teaching has caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have cursed you to be despised, to be humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but you have shown partiality in the matters of the law. Have we not all one father? Did not God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been done, committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings, accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why is it because the Lord is acting as the witness because you have the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Our friends, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means, and the will to put it into practice. We pray this in the name of and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, I want to start this morning by telling you a story. Um, the story is, uh, is about two young men. One is a prince. Um, he has a, a very godly, he's a very godly young man and he is very, very able. He's the son of a powerful but jealous and unpredictable king. Um, the young man is a shepherd boy. That's the other side of the equation. And... Uh, this shepherd boy has been remarkably successful. In fact, he's been so successful that many begin to wonder whether he is a future king. He's won battles that the king had given up on and the prince looked on. He was loyal to his father, but he really liked what he saw in the shepherd boy. He was a person like me, like him. Uh, he was a person that he could spend time with and get to know. And so the two young men became best friends. Um, the name of the prince, many of you will have already guessed, Jonathan. The name of the shepherd boy is David. Uh, they were great friends together. The name of the king of the time is Saul. Um, and the books of Samuel tell us their story. And it's a grand story, a very interesting story. They tell us that as 
Jonathan observes David, so as the future king, as it were, observes David and sees Saul, he sees the writing on the wall. He knows what is going to happen. He sees Saul gradually becoming mad with jealousy. Then he sees David rising in status and stature. Jonathan knows that eventually Saul will lose out. His dad will lose the kingship to this winsome, charming, cunning, and able young man. But Jonathan decides that he will stick with his father. Jonathan's a great man, one of the great ones in the Old Testament, I think, and you just get snippets of him, but I think he is a great one. Um, and so he and David enter into a covenant with each other. And in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel 14 to 17, Jonathan says these words to David. And I'll just read them to you. Don't look them up, just soak it in. But show me steadfast love like, like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call, David, uh, so call David's enemies to account. And so Jonathan and David, we're told, reaffirmed the oath out of love. And Jonathan did because he loved him as he loved himself. Now you can imagine what commentators do with all of that. Right? They abuse it and make it a homosexual relationship or whatever it is. But it's nothing like that. It's just the love of two men which you often see in conflict. The books of Samuel tell us that Jonathan had it right. That is, he stuck by his father... When his father engaged in, in battle with the Philistines and lost, he stuck with his father. And Jonathan and Saul were killed. And time passed on. There was a civil war. Eventually, what everyone expected happened, David became king. And in 1 Samuel 9, what he does is remember the covenant he had made with Jonathan. And he says to the court, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show steadfast love for Jonathan's sake? Isn't this a grand venture and a grand statement? Friends, Jonathan and David show us some vital things about covenants. Covenants are all about relationships. They're about how you relate to another and how you relate rightly to another. And Jonathan... And they have obligations, they have commitments. And Jonathan knew that. And he calls upon David to remember him and not cut off his steadfast love. In other words, he calls upon David to remember that they have a relationship with each other and to act accordingly. And David knows that. And so what he does is he begins to look for a way in which he can remember Jonathan and exercise steadfast love toward him. Friends, covenants are all about relationships. And relationships, relationships have obligations and commitments. And if that applies to relationship between two people, it also applies to relationship between God and people. 
Does that make sense to the whole thing? If you, go, if you have covenants, it, the rules work across even divine areas. So, how do you apply that? What's that all about? It means God has loved Israel. That's what, that's what the books of Samuel say and that's what Genesis, Exodus on says. God has loved Israel. And we saw him make that crystal clear in our verses 2 to 5 yesterday. He has formed a relationship with Israel. He has performed his obligation. Now the big question is, what about Israel? What will they do in this relationship? What is their response to the love of God? How will they react to what he has done for them? Well, this is the focus of the section we're going to look at in Malachi today. So I want you to have your Bibles open. Turn to Malachi chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 6 with me. First thing that God says is this. He's in a relationship with his people, but they haven't acted like it. He's in a relationship with his people. They have not acted like it. You see, in society, what, what's the right action of, of children and fathers? It's right that sons and daughters honour their fathers and servants honour their masters. But Israel does not show honour to God. They have actually abused God, is what Malachi is saying. They have not shown him the respect that his relationship with them demands. They have abused it. Uh, that is the heading for the section that follows this section. God's people have not shown the respect for God that fits relationship with them. They have abused God and their relationship. God's people have not shown the respect that fits. In the next few verses, God then focuses on three groups of people. Have a look at it with me. He focuses on priests, the people making offerings, and outsiders. That's a good group of people, isn't it? Priests, people making offerings, and outsiders. Let's see what he says about each of them. First, look at what God says about priests. And it's there. In, have a look at chapter 1, verse 6 and a half. God says, It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. Can you hear what he's saying? God's priests despise God's name. God's name was the precious way in which no other nation knew his name like this nation. God's law clearly states that only unblemished sacrifices are to be offered to God. But in verse 8, God's people bring blind animals. What they are doing is greatly offensive to God. What In the second half of, the verse, of verse 8, God tells them to try this out on their governor. It's a really cheeky little thing that he does. He says, well, try it, you know, you, you, you're keen to try it out on God. Why don't you try that out with your governor, see what he does? They have obligations to supply the governor with food. How about trying uh, taking the worst of your flocks and offering them to your king, your governor? What would he do? Would he accept you? Says the Lord. The answer is clear. He certainly would not. He would find it abusive behaviour. But God's people, well, they do it with God himself. In verse 10. God says how, the, how sick to death he is of their lack of respect and lack of honouring 
their God that they willingly entered into covenant with. He'd rather have no worship than this sham that they are giving. And it is a sham. He'd prefer they just abandoned worship altogether and were honest. He'd rather have no sacrifices than contemptible behaviour that is being perpetrated by Israel at this time. He doesn't want it. But it's not just the priests that God has, uh, has in mind. The people who bring the sacrifices are not without blame either. So it's not just the priests. People, ordinary people as well. Look at verses 13 and 14. God says that he's not simply a Persian governor. He's a great king. He's not just like that governor over there. No, no. He's a great king and he will not accept injured, crippled, diseased animals for sacrifice. He curses the people who cheat in order to defraud God as well. They have acceptable rams in their flocks and they bring the ones that are no good for breeding and they say, oh, God can make do with that. The Lord makes it clear he hates that sort of worship. It's not the worship you give a great king, it's the offal you throw to your dogs. That's what it is. It's rubbish. And that's what you effectively think of God. Now I'd like you to look at verse 11. It says this, My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to, to my name, because my name will be great among the nations. Now, I need to tell you that this verse could also be translated in the present tense. So we don't really know whether it's about the people offering worship in Malachi's day or in some future day. We don't know. But it doesn't really matter too much, does it? Because I want you to notice what he's saying. This verse is bang in the middle of a condemnation of God's priests and God's people. God's got both barrels, as it were, lined up. It's sandwiched between God's people offering polluted sacrifices. And here in the middle are people from the nations offering true and uncorrupted worship. What a rebuke that is, isn't it? Here's what God's people are doing. Here's what outsiders are doing. God's people who are in relationship with God don't fulfill the duties of their obligations, of their relationships. And outsiders who don't have obligations, they do. What does that say to the, about the people of God? Sisters and brothers in Christ, this passage is very potently strong. I need to tell you that. This is, these are tough words in the Old Testament. It's full of God's disgust. And God is very clear. He hates such empty worship. Hates it. He'd rather have no worship than empty worship. Now let's move to chapter 2. You see in chapter 2, uh, God changes gear, as it were. I think that's quite inappropriate to say in these, those times, isn't it? Because there's no gears to change. But nevertheless, um, he has expressed his disgust at the behaviour of the priests and now he tells them what's coming. You see, Deuteronomy says that the role of priests was to bless the people. But look at what God says, verse 2. Have a look. If they do not listen... If they do not turn things around and start honouring his name, then he will curse them and he'll... Uh, and look at verse 3. Uh, 
Sorry, let me just take it back a bit. He will curse them and he'll turn blessing into curse upon them. Look at verse 3. Priests were made, were meant to be holy. They were prohibited from touching certain things um, that would make them unclean. Can you see what the role of a priest was? His, the role of a priest was to be totally separate, to have their focus on God and to watch that very closely. But God says they will be made ceremonially unclean. He will spread the offal, that's the, the, the rubbish bits, of their sacrifices over their faces. Now what would God, what would make God say something so strong as that? They'll be carried off with it, he says. That is, they'll be shoved out of his presence. I'm putting it to you as tough as this passage is, for it is very tough. And the question is why? Why? Because God's priests have a purpose. What is the role of a priest in Israel? They have a special role. And verses 4 to 7 says their role was to lead and to teach. And verse 8 says they have failed spectacularly. Look at verse 8. For you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Eli. That is, you've, you've turned your role aside and you're no longer doing it. Verse 9, he indicates the judgment. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of law. So you haven't even done the legal thing right. That brings us to our third section. Friends, I hope you're feeling the brunt of this. I think this is one of the toughest passages in the Old Testament where God looks his leaders in the eye and says, this is what you're doing, and it is not on. 10 to 16. bit difficult to understand these verses, so you need to stick with me for a while while I explain them. Remember covenants? They are about relationships. Covenants have two sides. God's required to love, and he loves by being faithful to them. And uh, his people are required to love him, and they love him by being faithful to him. Now, what has God done so far? He has shown that he has not failed. He's been faithful. Chapter 2, what does it show us? That his people have spectacularly failed. Look at verse 10. God is clear that his people are faithless to each other and they have broken covenant. It's very, very hard. Look at this, as I said at verse 10. Now look at verse 11. Judah has broken faith with God. They are faithless to each other. They are faithless to God. They profane the covenant. It's as though they have taken God's covenant, thrown it in the dust and just stomped all over it. Can you hear what God is saying? It's potent. How have they been faithless? Malachi gives two examples, showing faithlessness by marrying outside the faith. And verse 11 says that God's people have married foreign women, the worshippers of foreign gods, and they've taken on their gods. Second example given in verse 14, God's people have shown faithlessness by being faithless in the most, in the most important relationship they are in. What's that? 
they have broken faith with their wives by divorcing them. Just like they've broken covenant with God. They broke covenant with their wives. Can you hear what God's saying? He's saying, you folk do not know what it is to be faithful. You can't do it in your ordinary life. You can't do it in your life with your God. Just like you had a covenant with God and broke it, so you've now broken covenant with your wives. God hates divorce. Because divorce is, what's a divorce essentially about? It's about unfaithfulness to vows you made. And at the core of his being, God is about faithfulness. At the core of divorce is unfaithfulness. Friends, there's our passage today. Now, Let's see if we can summarise. What's God saying about his covenant people? How have they responded to his great love for them? How have they treated God who loved them, loves them? First, they've engaged in rotten worship. I'm putting, I'm putting this harshly because I think the text does it. Okay, They've engaged in rotten worship. They give God the butt ends of worship. And they can, that can only be because they have no respect for him. And they have no respect for his law. He is of little significance to them. He's just like an institution that they just do the duty for. Second, they have a rotten leadership. Verses 4 to 6 talk about Levi and, and it talks about his godly leadership and true instruction was in his mouth. Nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with the Lord in peace and uprightness. He turned many away from sin. But in the leadership of Malachi's day, they're not doing it any longer. They're not doing what priests should do. It's corrupt, degenerate, rotten to the core worship. And the priests are at the centre of it. I'm really pushing this hard for you because I want you to see what's going on here and how angry God is third area is one that he's very, very worried about. Rotten family life. God's intention is that God's people mimic him in their relationship with each other. As he is to them, so they should be to each other. And the one place where they are more likely uh, to be, where they should be most like him is in families. Because God is a family God. He's loving and faithful. So they're to be loving and faithful in their relationships. As he is generous and kind, they're to be generous and kind in their relationships. As he cares for his children, they're to care for their children. As he loves his bride, they're to love their bride. And what are the... But instead, what are they doing? They're marrying outside the faith. They're divorcing their wives. They have rotten family lives. Israel, he is saying, and I want you to hear it, is rotten, rotten, rotten to the core. This is a very hard condemnation. Do you remember what I said previously? We are in covenant with God. We have been bought with the blood of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. We have also had the example of Jesus who showed us how to live a godly life. But we Christians, I think, fall, fail in some of the same areas that Israel fail in. Let me explain. 
See, I've travelled around churches both in this country and others. I have seen rotten worship. I don't mean the singing was bad, by the way. <laughs> no, I mean rotten worship. Rotten living with God. Rotten demonstrating that in what, you, what happens in your services. I don't mean badly performed music, let me tell you. <laughs> For example, I notice that it's not unusual to be in a church service. Have you noticed this? I started counting one day. Not unusual to be in a church service and to sing song after song after song that does not even mention Jesus. In a Christian church. I travel around a lot and it happens quite a lot. I tried a little test over a six month period that I where I was travelling as an itinerant speaker. And I said I would have a silent protest about church music. I would not open my mouth and sing any song that didn't talk about Jesus or about God's actions in Jesus. The end result? Sometimes I did not sing at all in a Christian service. Sometimes I did not sing at all because Jesus was not mentioned in what we sang. Um, the songs were full of adoration. Let me say they were musically wonderful, uplifting. But they, they didn't say anything about what God had done in his son. Friends, such worship is rotten worship. Never foster it. It is not worship that honours God. It does not contain words that honour God. I think that God would rather have us not sing at all than sing stuff that is empty of praise of him and what he's done in Jesus. And it's a massive problem in the contemporary church, let me tell you. But rotten worship is more than just singing. Rotten worship is when you come to church and praise God and then in the afternoon or the evening go back to normal life and lie and cheat and treat colleagues with, colleagues with disdain or perhaps the next day at work. Rotten worship is when you come to church and praise God but you don't change your life during the week. Rotten worship is when you have great theology but you don't love people. But the modern church is also similar to Malachi's day in many other ways. And let me explain it. There is much rotten leadership in our churches today. Over the past years we have seen world-renowned leaders cheat on their wives, haven't we? Or regularly visit prostitutes. God's leaders. But some of the most rotten leadership occurs, I think, when our church leaders don't do what God appointed them to do. He appointed them to pastor his people. And in the Bible, being a pastor is about being a teacher. That's what the word indicates. And there are many churches, even here in Victoria, there are many churches where, there, where pastors no longer open their Bibles at all in their ministry to their people. And there are many churches where pastors uh, no longer teach people from the scriptures. Where they have replaced the Bible with their own ideas and their own ideas come to the forefront. Friends, our churches today 
are full of rotten leaders. But not only that, there's much rotten worship as well. I'm sorry to be so hard, but the passage asks for it. It says, is there equivalent in our day? And I'm saying, yep, there is. Our churches are often full of rotten leaders. Not only have we much rotten worship and rotten leadership, we also have rotten family lives quite often. Parents don't love their children. Or they don't rear them in the faith. Or they don't teach them the truth. And the children don't honour their parents. They don't respect them. They don't care for them in their old age. You are from a, largely here, from a, from a part of the world which honours parents and so on. But often it's not happening these days. And the statistics you see for Christian marriage breakdown are not that different from the statistics for non-Christian marriage breakdown these days. Often not very different at all. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this passage is very serious and I'm wanting to show you that it's serious for us as well. It's not just some distant thing in the past. It's serious. I want you to ask yourself today seriously questions. Have you experienced God's great love for you in our Lord Jesus Christ? Have you? Are you in covenant with him? Are you in relationship with him? Well, if you are, then how do you show it? How have you responded to God's love? Do you love him? How can people tell that you do? Modelling life on God's word and not finding it burdensome is the primary way. Reading your word would be a good start. God's word would be a good start. And then living it. Now, I know many of you here do this. But may I urge you to excel even more. Model life on godly leaders that you have. Model marriages and relationships with others on the selfless giving of Christ. Loving your neighbour. Being generous in every way. And Christ-like in conduct. Helping the disadvantaged as Christ loves his church. That's what's required of us as his people. Read your New Testament. See it. See what Christ has done for you, where he left his father's side and died the most ignoble death he could die in his, in his time. For you. We need to be modelling our, our lives on Christ and returning to full worship of him in the everyday. And where do you start? Your marriage partner, your children, your parents. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you for who you have been toward us. Thank you that you are the gracious God who longs and who does be generous and kind. 
Father, please help us to be who you have made us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, uh, we come to you also confessing that we have not always been like we should be. And Father, we thank you that we can come to your throne of grace expecting mercy. So please forgive us. And Father, please fill us with your spirit that we might live as your people. Father, in our workplaces, in our world, in your world, but particularly, Father, we pray in our families and in our closest relationships. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.